Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. This show is all about commercial property investing for the private investor. Whether you're just getting started or scaling up your portfolio, through interviews, tips and lessons learned along the way, we want to give you the inspiration, knowledge and confidence to enjoy this great cash flowing strategy. Hello, welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor podcast. Thanks for joining me, Adam. It's great to see you. We met at Flexa just uh, a few weeks ago, the conference down in London. In fact, we shared the stage, didn't we? It's great to have you here. We did, Jerry, and uh, yeah, it was great. Great to meet you there. I think it was a great, great conference. We had a great panel session together, and thanks for inviting me on your podcast. Yeah, and I, I wanted to say the opportunity to actually delve a bit deeper into what we discussed on that um, on that day, which was more about tech and looking at data driven analysis for your flex space. But before we get into that lovely stuff, let's do a brief introduction to you. Can you maybe just give us a, a quick chat about how you got into flex space and where that's led you to now? Sure. So I've um, I've been in the property industry for about 20 years now. Uh, the first 10 years of that was high-end residential in London. And the second 10 years, really from 2012 onwards, was commercial property and flexible workspace through the Clubhouse, which is a concept I launched back in 2012. And the reason for the Clubhouse was kind of born out of the global financial crisis in, in 2008. Um, and the reason I say that is because after that uh, kind of black swan event, we had a lot of people that started to work for themselves. And that often happens after every kind of recession crisis. You get people that get disenfranchised with where they're working and go and start up their own thing. And particularly in professional services, particularly in property, that was also facilitated by, you know, the introduction of iPad, cloud computing, Dropbox, all of those kind of things that we take for granted, but they really only appeared and became mainstream in 2008, 9, 10. So, you know, I believe that co-working flexible workspace was really born from that moment in time where a lot of people started to do their own thing, but also empowered by wireless technology uh, to be able to do that. So the Clubhouse was really a concept based around that, and the aim was simply to fill a gap between meeting in hotel lobbies, coffee shops, members clubs that increasingly people were doing and office space, which they didn't need five days a week. And fast forward 10 years and we're in a world where not many people need a workspace five days a week. I remember meeting you at some flex space, something or another, um, back in maybe 2014, something like that. And And I did visit your location and was mightily impressed such a fab space in uh, Mayfair. And you ended up opening up another one, didn't you, as well? The, the first one was, was it 10,000 square foot, Adam, something like that? Yeah, so we had we had two in Mayfair, actually. Um, and then one in the city uh, near Bank and, and one in Hoban. And the typical space was between 10, 10 and 12,000 square feet. But the, the, the point you touched on there is, I, I think at that point really was the first time that we saw residential and hospitality design come into commercial arena and get rid of those kind of bland, you know, 
blue carpets and beach furniture from the 80s were well on their way out, but certainly it was still kind of very bland white walls. And so, you know, incorporating very aspirational elements that you find in, you know, the best hotels, clubs, and bringing those into office space for the first time really took off probably, you know, in 2010, 11, 12. Um, and, you know, many design-led operators are really growing at the same time. So you look at the office group and people that have come along at, at the same period of time. Yeah. And it's probably worth pointing out that actually your concept didn't have any private office space. It didn't. Which is um, unusual. It, it, it wasn't usual. So that was really born out of my need. So my background in residential property was that I didn't need an office because I was either on site a lot of the time, I was with architects or professional consultants, but I did need somewhere, you know, to present to clients to meet that wasn't just a coffee shop, uh, but was more kind of business-like. So it was born out of my own need. Uh, and therefore, we, we created, I suppose, a, a, a toolbox and provided everything that a business would need, but without overheads of an office. So whether that was meeting rooms, event space, virtual office solutions, hot desks, um, dedicated desks, lounge areas, we offered that all, all in one package. And you had food and hospitality, uh, sorry, food and beverage in there as well, didn't you? There was limited F&B. So we made sure that, you know, the catering for meeting rooms was great. So if you're in there for, you know, a strategy day or board meeting you know you were fueled and uh, as productive as you could possibly be yeah okay so just let's just talk a little bit about the deal for me that you to, to set that up because to me at the time taking on that size of space in Mayfair with a not proven concept and effectively doing a, a, a rent to rent really um, was pretty gutsy so how did you have the conviction that was going to work and how did you kind of bring that deal together uh, so you're right, it, it, was, um, uh, it was not without its challenges. The, the one thing that we had going for us was that, remember, the, part of the reason for global financial crisis was caused by the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, so when I went and met with institutional landlords and they said, well, you know, we're not quite sure about your covenant because you're a startup and you're forecast to make losses for the few years. Well, I said, well, look, you know, I could have been Lehman taking 100, 200,000 square feet from you. And then look what happened, uh, you know, the, the, the next year. So that question of covenant, you know, we could really uh, get by. Um, and actually, for our first site on Grafton Street, um, we were able to take the, the, the tail end of a lease of some great space that was really nicely fitted out. Uh, so our upfront capex cost was minimal. And we had, you know, the tail end of a lease to, to prove the concept and see if it would work rather than, you know, putting our eggs all in one basket or our balls on the line and taking, you know, a 10, yeah. 10 or 15 year lease. So we were very good. Uh, we had a good opportunity to, to, to get in there and then prove the concept and took that to, to other sites. But as you say, you know, it was a new concept. We had to convince a lot of people and, you know, raising equity was certainly, was certainly challenging. I bet it was. And the tech stuff. Let's just talk a mm. little bit about the tech stuff because even then you were already harnessing what tech do. I, I remember you had a ground floor entrance with reception. You may not have called it reception, but some staff there, hospitality there, straight away as you went in. But clearly, you you made it as frictionless as possible for customers. So there were, you know, several aims. The, the, the fundamental uh, aim, the, the why, if you like, of the business was simply to make our members and their businesses more successful. You can only do that if you really understand how they use space, what their needs are, and then provide the most seamless experience to, to deliver that. So technology was key in making that as frictionless as possible. But also, um, if we were designing memberships for you know, flexible use and co-working 
spaces, then we needed to get the data and insight to make sure that we've created the right product and priced accordingly. And you can only do that by understanding how often people come in, how long they're, they're there for. And actually, one of the things we got wrong very early on was the pricing. It was, it was far too cheap because were we a members club, were we an office? And actually, over about five years, I think the prices went up something like 90%. And we grew as a result. Um, yeah. by attracting a better a better kind of caliber of, of, of member. So technology was key. Uh, and when we launched, you know, there were none of these great operating platforms like Office R&D and, and Nexodus around, which are, you know, absolutely fundamental now to anyone running yeah. this kind of business. We actually started off with a, a software package that was designed for gyms because we were selling memberships and, you know, meeting room booking was like a, a spin class booking or something like that. But then we worked very closely with the likes of Nexodus from about 2014, um, and really help create a platform where we could get real insight into how people are using the space. So every time a member checked in, we then got a timestamp between when they checked in and when they checked out. We built up usage profiles that enabled us to get our pricing right, that enabled us to ensure we had the right configuration of space, uh, and also you know, the opportunity to, to upsell when we saw that people might have been on the, on the wrong product uh, and we could find something better, better for them. Um, and I think one of the questions that was, it's not so levied at the industry now, but was five or six years ago, is can co-working spaces make money? And simply, if you're not tracking that, then probably not. Well, I think what's interesting, though, is that my perception of co-working was that if you had a shared space and not much else facility-wise, particularly in terms of private space, that you would potentially lose customers because ultimately they might grow, they might build their team. So in my head, co-working that didn't have that opportunity to upsell space, private space, might be losing out and therefore may find it difficult to get that traction. But of course, that's a narrow view because yours wasn't necessarily just about a co-work space. It was everything else that came with it, wasn't it? It, it was. And I think we also have to think that, you know, commercial property is one of the biggest uh, industries, you know, on on the planet, just in terms of the, the square footage, um, the money involved, and so on. But when we talk about co-working, flexible workspace, you know, it is a cottage industry. It actually hasn't been around for, for that long in, in in relative terms. And you know, if you look what some of the big commentators and agents say now, you know, it's probably five percent of office supply in in major metropolitan areas. So there's a lot of learning that's still that's still happening as the sector evolves. Uh, and kind of co-working per se has and it has changed. Um, you know, my view is we kind of went from serviced offices in, in the 80s, which were just bland boxes that, that people took. We then evolved through kind of co-working in the, you know, in the 2010s up to now. And now we're kind of going into the, the next iteration, V3, if you like, which is flexible workspace, which encompasses all of that. So service, co-working, manage, Cate Plus, and, uh, and the like. Um, and I think, I think why that's important is you've got to understand. Uh, you know, that there are early adopters out there. Some will get it right, some, some will get it wrong. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's very much in the early stages of growth and, and we've got to fit, figure that out. Now, of course, for the larger occupiers, um, co-working in inverted commas probably only accounts for 5%, 10% of their revenues. So naturally, you'd be focusing on, you know, the 80%, which is, yeah. which is office space. Uh, I think, you know, the likes of WeWork probably swung from more kind of co-working you know, in 2015, 16, and then it went much more into enterprise, um, you know, in kind of 2018 and 19. Um, but I think now, you know, post-pandemic, there's increased demand for 
you know, memberships drop in space and, yeah. and, and so on. So we're just trying to find the balance. Yeah, and we, we, we're definitely having more customers now using our flexible spaces where the head office pays, whereas before it might have been they paid themselves and it was their own business. And now we have more HR departments paying or whatever mm. for their staff to use our spaces. It's interesting. I remember back in the earlier days there when the serviced office sector, and let's just call it the business centres, would look at the co-working side and each other would look at across each other over this divide, wondering on earth, what on earth they were up to and whether they were going to kill each other. And, and over time, of course, that, that has let, has begun to blend, hasn't it? And that certainly from our, our um, offer and just in our little spaces that we have, we are more and more pushing towards having the co-work, hospitality, the, um, the stickiness, if you will, that is complemented with private space. So you will have some customers that just, or we have some customers who are not interested in talking to other customers, but lots of them now are, are preferring to maybe pay for a smaller space, but have access to lots of shared space where they can get those experiences, meet people, uh, but they have a door they can shut if they want to get on with some other mm. stuff. And it's interesting that you see it, and it, it's evolving all the time. And of course, it depends on what your sector is, where you are, what location, and all that sort of thing. Um, I want to ask you a question, though, about one last thing about um, the clubhouse. How many, well, as you evolved, how many different um, memberships did you have? Because it's tempting when customers come in and they say, well, look, I know you can do that, but could you maybe do it this way? Or we'd only like to be in for three days a week, or we would like a fixed day. And, and there's all these iterations and it can be tempting to, to offer anything to everybody because you want to get the place full. But in the end, what, what, what was your structure of memberships? Yeah, so um, there's t- t- two points there. And I just want to come back on, on, on the point we were making before. I think, you know, if you look, whether it's a traditional um, uh, landlord or a serviced office of, you know, the, the years gone by, they really didn't care about what companies did. And actually, probably the companies themselves didn't care too much about what they did. But now we understand that companies are very different in the way that they approach their their work. People are much more cognizant of the types of work they they do, particularly in knowledge-based industries. You know, you're very much focused on whether a a task is collaborative versus deep work and and so on. And now people are thinking much more about the kind of spaces that are better suited to to, to doing those. Uh, And that is no more uh, important than it is now where people have got the opportunity to decide themselves where they where they do that work. Um, going back to uh, what we're saying about the clubhouse, that's where the data was was key because without that, we didn't get a steer on how people were using the space. Um, and so there was, of course, the, the, the low hanging fruit. You know, that was the professional services firms, um, and it, it's by kind of getting a real handle on that data and segmenting it that we're better able to understand. You know, the key archetypes of members, how we serve the needs of those archetypes and make sure that we've designed or repositioned uh, the spaces uh, around that. Fortunately, in the first um, space, we got the vast majority of it right, but we use that kind of iterative experience to design future spaces and also to tailor memberships uh, accordingly, to look really at how people were using them, how many days a week they were in, how many hours a day they were in, but also not just from a membership perspective, it was really that customer lifetime value. So, you know, what were they spending on membership? What were they spending on virtual office solutions, meeting room bookings, uh, and so on? And then we could 
tailor corporate packages around that. So the memberships themselves were, were standard, but actually we, we quickly got up to teams of, you know, 20 or 30 people uh, that were big kind of corporate um, subscriptions and maybe they'd have a, a meeting room package where they might be spending 10 or 20,000 pounds a month on, on, on meeting rooms. So the products themselves were fairly standardized over time, but we could put together corporate deals. Yeah, okay, okay. All right, so we touched on a couple of times there about data. Um, let's move on to your next stage of your career. You 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 exited the business mm. and you have now taken a lot of those learnings and you've set up productive. So maybe you could just talk us through that next that next phase, Adam. So 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 what was what was really interesting, I think. Um, look, we, we we certainly didn't get everything right. Uh, I think some, some people know that, but we did get a lot right. Um, and those things that we did get right, particularly around, um, you know, the level of hospitality and design and the experience we gave were, you know, were, were quite well recognized. So when the deal with um, IWG went through, um, I was approached by several uh, other operators, some I knew, some I didn't. Um, and I was quite fortunate, really, to have a look under the bonnet of, the, of these operators. Uh, and what was quite interesting is when you pulled back the veneer, I suppose, of brand and design, which I think is actually getting quite commoditized. You know, 10 years ago, um, design-led workspaces had the advantage, but that design is, uh, is quickly appearing in, you know, everywhere you go. So the next com- competitive advantage is really the experience and, and the data. And what I found is when I went into different workspaces and lifted up the bonnet, all of the systems that were being used were primarily the same. Um, and it was a disparate, fragmented set of systems. So typically there would be a CRM solution that was being used to manage, you know, lead an opportunity pipeline. Uh, the three main ones are typically Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, or, or HubSpot. Then alongside that, you've probably got an operating platform which manages all your leases, licenses, memberships, meeting rooms. Uh, the ones that we typically work with are the likes of Nexus, Office R&D, there are others uh, around, like Ascensus and Yardi, uh, and so on. Um, then you've got finance platforms. You know, Zero is probably the most the most common. Uh, everyone's then got their forecasts and budgets on spreadsheets. So you've got all of this disparate stuff, which really reminded me of you know how days were spent at, at the clubhouse. And you know, we used to see the sales team spending most of Friday, say, reporting. You know, they'd be exporting stuff from Salesforce, making sure it matched the forecast, you know, making sure that the contracts were set up and, you know, people were getting upset at the end of the day when they couldn't reconcile things and then spend Monday morning in a team meeting unpicking this. And I just thought it just wasn't a productive use of time. You know, we need to empower people to do the jobs that they're hired to do. No one likes reporting. If, we're, if we've got experienced people or operations people or salespeople, that's what their jobs they're hired to do. So how can we give them the right tools to be able to do that job to the best of their abilities five days a week rather than three days a week? So we actually started this process of building a uh, really integrated suite of reports and dashboards to create a single pane of glass. So whichever software package people were using or whichever combination of them, they had real-time insight uh, to help them run the business, to help them improve their business and to take some of the the guesswork out of, out of it. Um, so having seen these challenges within you know, a number of operators, we started to build uh, a really neat SaaS-based analytics platform specifically for the sector, knowing the operational uh, data points that people need. Interesting. So I, I certainly recognize some of those names you spoke about and some of those products we use some, and also the pains, because 
the other elements are the building itself, the um, door access, the fire system, the security, um, all, all these different components that people provide. So you might have Salto that provide door access, or you might have, um, you mentioned their Yardy, they might, they might do internet access. And, and all these things often don't want to talk to each other. Another one is security cameras, you know, and it, having the ability, that holy grail of being able to actually access all those on one platform is, yeah, clearly something that people have been stretching for, something we've been trying to trying to sort out. And some of those, you do get a match. And Office R&D, we looked at Office R&D maybe two, three years ago. And at the time, it didn't quite have the capability of working with our offer where we have more private space but was doing well with the co-working, but now it's evolved and, and we, we now work with Office R&D as well. And, and it's, it's interesting how some of the industry are still keeping closed and others are saying, no, we want, to, we want to be open so we can connect with others. And it's almost like we were talking about earlier on about some of the older guard in the industry have their way of doing things and still talk about it and promote it mm. and work and work sleepwalking down that road. Whereas these other new businesses, including the tech sector, are just saying, why do you do it that way? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're not doing that. And I think, you know, sometimes it is people are not actually paying any attention. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. And that that's what I find particularly fascinating, where I find, you know, a, a massive opportunity for you know, for, for some of the work that we're doing to help operators, whether they've been around for some time or whether they're new, to, to stay ahead of the pack. And I think for, for far too long, um, you know, workspace owners, operators haven't had the need to innovate because, you know, they, they put somebody in a box, give them the key and say, well, let's have a conversation in five years when we've got a rent review or, or, or something yeah. like that. But as, uh, you know, corporate life cycles have shortened, due to technology and companies are growing at such a faster rate than, than, than before, you know, it's very hard for any company to predict what their headcount's gonna be next year, never mind in five years time. So yep. we all know that's one of the key reasons why lease lengths have come down and, and the need for flexible solutions has, has gone up. The other thing is that in, in property, um, property people generally don't speak the same language as technology people uh, and, and vice versa. And property people, you know, I've seen really sometimes don't know the questions to ask the technology people and technology people don't know the questions to ask um, property people. Um, so quite often, you know, th these solutions have worked in isolation uh, for, for, for some time. They haven't had the need to, to integrate. Um, but we now know that, that that is no longer the case. If I just reflect on our audience, our audience, quite a lot of them are... I don't know everybody in the audience. That's the thing. Beauty of podcasts, right? You don't, you don't quite know who your audience is. But certainly the feedback I get that a, a number of them are just getting started in commercial. Mm. They want to look at FlexBase because they understand that actually the offer can be different now. And, and there's parts of the industry that are not catching up with that and things that we could talk about, like valuations and all those issues that come with that. But nevertheless, some of those new stars you're talking about yeah. – um, are, are looking at commercial property from a slightly different angle from the get-go, which is brilliant. So what are the sort of things you would suggest they need to look at um, in terms of moving forward? Because we, we've spoken a little bit about tech. We haven't spoken necessarily about measurement and actually looking at the, the data collection. Yep. So maybe we could just talk about that, just bearing in mind that some, some of these guys are just getting started in this sector. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, 
just just going back a bit, you know, through no fault of our own, uh, most people in in this sector start with a building. You know, they they find a building, they have a vision for some space, and think, you know, this could work as a great service office or co-working space or, or whatever it may be. Um, then you know, you start going through the design phase, and then think, oh, I better hire some people to run it. Now we need to start marketing and selling it. Oh, and a little bit of technology so we can, you know, record all the leads and opportunities yeah. and might come in handy. And maybe we'll just put the leases on 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 the spreadsheet. So. For a long time, technology has been an afterthought. So my only piece of advice is don't leave that to the last minute. Let's have that conversation much earlier on. Um, and what we generally do when we work with people is start right at the beginning and map out a customer journey. So we don't even talk about technology um, because otherwise that's potentially putting a, a square peg in a round hole. It's really understanding what that building, particular building is about, what that particular operator is about, uh, looking at the customer journey, who they're trying to attract, why they're trying to attract them. And then once we've mapped out that whole journey, then we can start aligning the best pieces of technology to it. Because as, as you said, there's no perfect piece of technology. Um, they all have their slight tweaks and, and differences. Uh, and so we won't come along and say, well, you need to use this, that, and the other without really understanding the drivers of that business and deciding, is Salesforce or HubSpot better? Is office R&D or Nexus better? Um, so making sure that we look at it much more holistically uh, and choose the right tool for the job. Okay. So if they're looking at um, developing out that space, what are the bits of kit they maybe need to think about putting in? Mm. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of things now are going Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, which is brilliant. Yeah. But, but being a bit long on the tooth, I, I remember cabling things everywhere and you've got a historic building that is... A, pain if you have to yeah. go back and redo anything so what are some of the things people need to be thinking about in that design stage in terms of actual hardware kit that they need to be putting in so you, you you've got the basics a lot of people will talk about the obvious ones you know resilient um uh wi-fi and good bandwidth and, and stuff coming in I, i'm going to say that that's a given you know that that's a hygiene factor um, yeah. You know, it's like having a water supply to your house, you know, um, let, let's let's kind of move on from that. So I'm not discounting it, but, you know, to, to the next level, it's really understanding about how people are using space to make sure that we design the space accordingly. And if we haven't, to use the, the objective data to reposition it and make sure we don't make mistakes the, the next time. So some of the data that we find really uh, useful is access control data uh, for obvious reasons, you know, how many people are coming into the building and out. But also we need to look at that user journey because we need to make sure that we get a timestamp on the way in, but also on, on the way out, particularly if you're selling memberships. You know, some people are charging by the minute or the hour of the day. And unless you've got that data, um, then it's very hard to, to, to sell that product. And there are different ways of, of doing that. You know, you can have a barrier, of course, but there are frictionless ways by you know, having a reception desk that people present their card to, for example, or making sure that to leave the building, um, you know, they have to tap their card rather than push a button. But no solution to perfect. They'll always be tailgating. You know, you might hold the door yep. open for, for somebody. Um, so we're also uh, looking much more at sensor technology as well. Um, so we're doing a huge amount of work currently with IoT occupancy sensors and, and people tracking sensors. Um, and a lot of people, I think have struggled to get their heads around this because there's great technology out there. And some of the companies selling this really haven't translated those features into benefits uh, as well as they could. So for example, if we get the right infrastructure in place, whether it's access control or sensors, um, we can make sure that if you sold 
100 memberships and there are 100 members in the space, great. But if you sold 100 memberships and consistently there's 150 people in the space, well, someone's letting their mate in or, or holding the door. So therefore, we look at why that's happening, what we can do about it. So whether it's member education, whether it's an easier sign-up process, uh, and so on. Similar thing for, for meeting rooms. Um, you know, meeting rooms are a really, really valuable secondary revenue stream uh, and actually growing in importance now as people aren't in the office five, five days a week. So, you know, memberships and uh, meeting rooms pre-COVID might have accounted for somewhere between 10 and 20% of revenues for some of the larger operators. I think that's probably going to go to 20 to 30%. But you need to be able to track how those rooms are being used. So to give you an example of that, we have a real wealth of booking information from platforms like Office R&D. Uh, and next to this, we can see which of the rooms are, are most popular, how many hours a day they're in, in use, uh, and so on. But there's a couple of things that we can't see. Uh, one is um, that the, the actual um, utilization of those rooms, because there's a lot of freeloading in the industry. You know, if a room's empty, somebody might just go in and, uh, and use it, or maybe they book it for an hour and stay for, for, for two. I'm not a fan of putting access control on meeting room doors because I think that breaks the user journey. Uh, you know, if I'm the one that's booked and paid for the room, but actually my colleague goes and uses it, they might not be able to get in. Or equally, if they're external bookings, you know, people might not be able to get in the room without somebody having to open the door. So I'm not a fan of access control of meeting rooms, but if we put a sensor in the room, we can quickly see what the delta is between what's been booked and, uh, and what's used. And the other thing we do is um, put anonymous people counting sensors in rooms as well, because a lot of operators would design space that maybe you've got a room that seats four, a room that seats eight, a room that seats 12, but let's get a better steer on actually how many people are in, are in these rooms. Again, really important post-COVID if we're understanding hybrid meetings, you know, number of people dialing in versus present in the room. And we can better use that data to provide the best experience, to make sure we're pricing the products accordingly, and fundamentally to make sure we're designing and positioning space accordingly. Yeah, so in, in, in uh, larger open plan spaces, you typically would design different areas to work with less borders and boundaries and walls but you might have an area that's trying to be a bit of a more quieter area. You might have an area that's more social. You might have an area that's slightly more to do with food and bev. And having sensors in those different areas will allow you to actually track properly with data how many people are actually using it. So you might have spent £10,000 on that beautiful suite of sofas, but actually no, nobody's using them. <laughs> and, and, and really important, because obviously in, in, in property, um, you know, that is the biggest cost, uh, you know, the cost of that square footage, which isn't, you know, kind of rentalized by way of a, a, a lease or a license it, it is very expensive. So, you know, what is the right amount of space to have um, relative to the size of the building? What's the right configuration? You know, should it be hot desks? Should it be more formal dedicated desks, lounge areas, breakout spaces? Um, and increasingly, you know, there's a big focus at the moment on phone booths and, and, and Zoom booths. You know, how many little phone boxes do you need for, for people to go and nip into and you know call their call their partner or the bank or whoever you need to speak to versus um zoom boots which somebody might be in for you know half an hour doing a podcast like this or pitching to a client for an hour uh, and making sure that you've got the right configuration space and unless you have that data which can come from very affordable wireless iot sensors these can all be retrofitted at you know very minimal cost and the real-time data um to build up that picture then th th there's there's no way of knowing so not only is it about providing the right space to provide the best experience but also um we we're speaking to a very large operator 
uh, and looking at um, how data can, can support their net zero targets. And what they've noticed initially is they believe that 70 to 80% of their energy consumption is coming from 20 to 30% of their space, which is you know, the Pareto principle. Uh, and that 20 to 30% space is the open plan area. So you know, offices might be self-contained, uh, less draft, easier to you know, cool or heat. Lights can go off when, when they're not in use, but you know, open plan spaces, you know, quite drafty, doors being open, temperatures bouncing up and down, um, lights on you know, 24-7. So if people really are focused on reducing their CO2 emissions uh, and hitting their net zero goals, then again, that objective insight is going to become much more important. Yeah, interesting. Um, let's just dive a little bit more into the tech for a second. And, and by the way, the, the phone booths and the Zoom rooms, and they are fab, but my goodness, they're not cheap. <laughs> when you, you know, if you get a suite of these things, it's a few pounds invested. Um, they, they are expensive, but again, it's about providing the, the best experience and the right tools for the job. You know, sure. So uh, if somebody is selling a, uh, a SaaS subscription that's going to cost a client thousands of pounds a year and, and they can present in a soundproof booth and come across in the best possible way, well, you know, they might pay £50 an hour to, to, to book that room um, yep. and then you can get the money back uh, over time. And that's whether you design and build them yourselves or, or bring in some of the, um, you know, the, the, the purpose-built, purpose-designed uh, products that are out there. Yeah. Okay, Adam, so let's just quickly talk about the tech because we did that when we had Tony mm. on the panel. And he had one of those little sensors with him. Just talk me through a little bit about the pricing, but also how the data is gathered. Because setting up 15 sensors in an open plan space is one thing, but actually, how do you gather that data? What's the tech that's actually used there for that? So just just on the cost, yeah. Um, we we know the size are pretty small. The data they collect, they don't just collect, you don't just get one for temperature and then another one. You know, they will collect a number of um, data points, won't they? They, they, that, that, that's right, they do. So the, the sensors themselves can be uh, really cost-effective. They're, they're wireless, um, battery-operated, and somewhere between you know, 50, 60, 70 pounds a sensor, depending on the ones that, 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 that you get. Um, and that's the hardware cost. And then you probably pay an ongoing subscription fee of probably you know, five pounds a month uh, for, for the data. So they're relatively inexpensive. Um, give, you, give you an idea if you wanted to you know, pilot some of this in, a small area, maybe 10,000 square feet that would cover open plan space, meeting rooms. You're probably looking at something like four or 5,000 pounds as an upfront cost. Uh, and then on an ongoing basis, maybe five, five or 600 pounds a month. Now, we are working with several um, forward thinking operators at the moment that are also putting these not only in open plan areas, but putting in their occupiers' offices to provide them with objective, actionable data that their occupier clients can then use in, in, in running their business. Yep. And so we just put, um, I think, 65 workstation sensors uh, in one office that also have three meeting rooms and a couple of phone booths. And once that cost has been absorbed, which is, as I said, about five £5,000, the mon monthly cost about £500 a month which is the cost of one desk. I don't know what the pricing is like where, where you are, Jerry, but you know, yeah. a cheap desk in London is probably about 500 pounds. So if we're in the business of providing space as a service, it's not just about you know, the furniture in an office, but it's about the insight of how people are using that. And what we're seeing you know, very early on, but we've seen fantastic returns on this, is that the analytics we get from that go so far in supporting that operator-occupier relationship 
that we've got a much better visibility on how that business is doing and therefore tailoring you know, solutions around their needs. So again, you know, with lease lengths coming down, if people are only signing up for you know, 12, 18 months or something like that, we've got a better prediction of are they going to need more space at the end of that term or are they going to need less space? And actually, it seems like most occupiers, uh, sorry, most operators are doing pretty well and, and heading back up to you know, the kind of occupancy levels seen pre-COVID. And the worst thing that can happen is when you've worked so hard to look after a customer is that you lose them because you can't accommodate many more in a building that, that's almost full. So the better data you have, the earlier you have that data, the more you can support that, that relationship. Okay, Adam. So earlier on, you touched on this. Just want to go back to here. Um, we spoke about business centres, the evolution, co-working coming up on the side, the evolution of um, design-led space, and now you feel we're kind of moving into a third area, somewhere where we can start differentiating ourselves again. Do you want to just just explain where you, where you see things going? Um, yeah, I think I think the kind of way I sum it up is we're, we're really really looking at kind of a, a data driven member centric approach. And what I mean by that is we have to understand how people use space to deliver the service that they need. And as the flex space industry is growing and becoming much more competitive, uh, you know, if people aren't getting that service, then they can go go to the operator next door who who might. Um, and I think that's going to become increasingly uh, important when more and more companies go for like B Corps certification, when more and more companies have to, you know, nail their colours to the mast in terms of CO2 and need um, scope emissions data, for, for example. And that's a big opportunity for our industry, which um, not many people are really looking at. And what we mean by scope emissions, if you've got a net zero target, you achieve that really by looking at your scope emissions. Scope one is how do I control the energy um, you know, directly? It's kind of turning light switches off and doing the obvious things. Um, scope two is where's my energy coming from? Uh, you know, is it green energy? Uh, maybe it's coming from you know, a, a green supplier or maybe a, a heat pump or something like that. But scope three is where's the energy in my value chain? Uh, what are those other bits? And you know, if we think about our industry, then for most of our um, occupiers, scope three is the energy consumption of our buildings. So if we don't have energy efficient buildings, if we aren't able to provide that data, then somebody may move around the corner. Even if it's not, not as an attractive a building, might not have the best technology, but uh, if they do have a CO2 target to hit, that could quickly become a differentiator. Yeah, if there is a tick box there that must be ticked, it could be just as simple as you, 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 can't, you can't provide the data, therefore we have to go around the corner because yeah. the office tells us that's the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, just um, while we talk a little bit, or we're just talking there a little bit, sorry, about where we think things are going, during the conference, there was quite a lot about wellness. Um, yes, we spoke about the environment, of course, but also the environment in the buildings for customers. Sensors obviously can help with that, but ultimately you're still going to have to then instigate, spend some money on whatever piece of kit you're going to need. Mm. Are you seeing any changes within that kind of sector, a bit more flexibility, or are we still looking at real large capital expenditure? Is there ways of making that more efficient? Um, really good question, and, and thanks for picking up on that. So the sensors that we've installed, um, there's three types that we look at. One is um, occupancy, uh, one is utilization, and the third is an environmental sensor. 
Um, and the environmental sensors, again, really affordable wireless sensors, probably cost about 40, 40 pounds, um, 50 pounds a sensor. Uh, and the data from those is, you know, four or five pounds a month. But we're looking at several environmental par uh, parameters. Temperature um, is, is the first obvious one, because if it is about providing the best possible experience, then we need to make sure that we're providing fairly consistent temperatures before somebody complains that they say it's too hot or too cold. Um, older buildings might not have a BMS. Newer buildings might have a BMS, but nobody knows how to access the data because it's on some old server somewhere yep. that only the building manager knows how, how to look at. So by putting sensors in, we can use some very intuitive, very user-friendly dashboards that everyone can have access to, uh, to make sure that the best experience is provided. But also, um, temperature links into the point I was making about energy. You know, if you've got temperatures that are bouncing up and down, you're going to use a lot of energy to try and maintain those, either to cool the room if it's too hot or to heat the room if it's too cold. So making sure we've got a good read on, on temperature. But the other one um, that I'm fascinated about is, is CO2 levels, because there's a lot of research that's been done uh, fairly recently, and we now know that high CO2 levels have a detrimental effect on our productivity. You know, if you've ever been in a poorly ventilated meeting room after a few hours we, we start to kind of get bored and switch off and, uh, and fall asleep and so if we are in the kind of space as a service business or i'd like to think of it as the productivity business to, to allow people to do their best day's work we've got to make sure that the air they breathe uh, is going to be conducive to, 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 to productivity there was a lot of excitement about air quality during covid um, i think you know that that's probably gone past us now dare, dare i say and you know if you are in urban areas and a bus goes past you know you, you might not have the best air quality so you've got to be careful what you're looking to measure because sometimes you might not want to see the, the data or if you if you do know the data you might either do something about it or decide otherwise but um co2 levels uh in workspace it, it is a really important one if you are leasing the space from, from someone and you're paying a hefty service charge to the landlord. Well, the landlord's side of the bargain is they provide, you know, an ME system, you know, they're charging you for it, they make sure that you know the ventilation is, is sufficient. And if you've got sensors that prove otherwise, then that's a good objective data point to go to the landlord and say, look, you know, I'm not going to pay the service charge unless you do something about the um uh, the HVAC. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Alan, this is really really fascinating. We've covered loads of different areas. Let's just give you a couple of minutes here just to tell us how your company and what you're doing can help and how people can access that. Um, thanks. Yeah, time time has has flown by. Yeah. Um, but um, so productive, um, as I mentioned, was really born out of having had uh, the opportunity to go and look under the bonnet of different workspaces and seeing that throughout the industry, um, you know, tech is is fragmented. So I suppose I, I come to it from having had that operational experience, so not just a, a theoretical, you know, consultant point of view, but you know, I've operated workspaces for, for ten years, so know what people need, uh, and have the experience of working and installing several of these these platforms. So. My aim really is, is to, to help operators um, better align technology and processes with, with the customer experience. And in doing so, help to kind of cross that prop tech gap by translating tech speak into a language that property people understand and, uh, and, and, and vice versa. So um, if anyone listening is um, you know, an operator, large or small, whether they're in the industry or not, uh, and just wondering what solutions are out there, how, how to go about it, 
you know, very happy to have a have a conversation because at the end of the day, you know, we're not we're not really selling technology. We're kind of agnostic in that sense, but we're looking to get the most out of technology as we can to support that customer experience. And if we get that right, we drive customer lifetime values uh, and all those concerns about shorter lease lengths, for example, completely go out of the window because whilst they might sign up for 12 or 18 months, if you get it right, they renew two, three, four, five times over. Fantastic. Okay, thanks, Adam. I've got one last question for you. Whilst being out there under all these bonnets <laughs> with your toolkit, um, who do you think we should be watching in the industry? Who's really um, got their finger on the pulse? Do you know, it, it, it's amazing. There are so many uh, prop tech solutions out, out there. There's a, a wall of money investing in, in prop tech. Um, some will succeed, some, some won't, but adoption needs to be greater. Uh, I think uh, people are scared of technology. They don't need to be scared of technology. Um, but there are some great, great platforms out there. Um, it'd be... It, it, it's challenging for me to name all of them, uh, yeah, of but course. just to give an example of some that we work very closely and I found are, are great solutions. So um, Office R&D and Nexodus in, in equal measure uh, are the platforms that we, we work with. Uh, from a sensor perspective, we work with uh, two. One is called UbiquiSense, uh, one is called SpaceT, um, and they're, they're some of the, 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 the key platforms. Um, from an access control point of view, which is becoming much more important, not only from a seamless uh, journey and, and experience, but from the data we get from that. Um, Salto uh, is, is one of the best because that also works within uh, Office R&D and Nexodus's apps. Yep. Um, from a CRM perspective, um, HubSpot seems to be the one that many are going with at the moment. Uh, very user-friendly, not quite as clunky and complex to set up as some of the big ones. Um, but if anybody would like to just talk through the pros and cons, I'm very, very happy to have a conversation. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're on, on track with a few of those. <laughs> Good. Um, what about operators, Adam? Anybody you've, you've had your eye on and thought, gee, these guys really know what they're up to and are growing? Is there any there that you think um, people should keep track of? Oh, is that, that, is that, that, is that, that, that difficult because you've that, got customers? That would be biased. Uh, <laughs> I've got to be careful. But I think, you know, what's fantastic now is there's so much choice um, where operators just need to be careful is to make sure that they keep innovating, don't yeah. rest on their laurels, um, you know, remain dynamic, look at new ways of getting competitive advantage because some of those that, that got them there, such as brand and design, might not be the, sufficient to, to, to maintain them. Um, but there are some, you know, some great operators um, and also regionally, um, you know, we've set up a, a, another platform, which I haven't, haven't mentioned yet, called Catalyst. Uh, and the idea behind Catalyst, if you look at catalystspace.io, um, is simply an opportunity to showcase the best independent workspaces uh, around the country. So very much like, say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, for example, will showcase boutique hotels uh, around the world and give them that platform to compete with some of the, you know, the, the, the bigger chains. That's our aspiration with, with, with Catalyst. And there's some great independence um, in small towns and rural areas that are really challenging uh, and breaking the mold uh, because they're doing one thing and that's providing what their customers want, uh, which is what hadn't happened in the industry in the industry for a long time. Yeah. Fantastic. Adam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. What we will do afterwards is I'll ask you for some of your contact details. I'll put them in the show notes for anyone that wants to get in touch. Thank you so much for your time.
I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast. And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be a first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.